This episode of John Smith and Jamestown, The Real Story, is going to give you a wrap-up of Smith's exit from the very divided colony, plus what happened to both he and them after he left. If ever there was a true story for a good filmmaker to take on, this is one. It has heroes and heroines, good guys and bad guys, drama and intrigue, all the elements needed for a great movie. And it's all true. If you put yourself in Smith's place, leaving Plymouth full of hope, only to find yourself surrounded by others both jealous of your abilities and suspicious of your motives. Theirs being to get rich quick on all that gold they'd find lying on the ground. Yours being to map out and begin a new colony. Despite them trying to hang you twice. A story with all the twists and turns. Not the least of those being caused by King James and Newport's misled ideas for Indian diplomacy which totally destroyed relations and trade with the Indians. Our last two chapters, and yes, I had announced that this would be the last, but there's just too much story to tell for one. Begin with the fate of the ship, the Sea Adventure, carrying 150 new colonists, a ship which was headed from England to Jamestown with a fleet of smaller supply ships, but a ship which was caught up in a terrible storm, a tempest, if you will. That same tempest, being the storm that inspired Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Then we'll hear about the starving time at Jamestown. Smith was finally gotten rid of, thanks to their plot to seriously injure him, and it worked. And now they could happily spend their days digging for gold, which didn't exist, and relaxing while they should have been gathering food and doing what was needed to survive the winter. As a result of their lack of leadership, only 60 men out of the 490 that began that winter, were to survive. Approximately seven out of every eight would die miserable deaths. Powhatan had done all he could to starve them out and kill them, showing no gratitude for the house that Newport built him or the pile of gifts he'd been given. And the swords and weapons that Newport had given them added to the ones they had stolen. And those weapons were making the Indians very hostile indeed. By May of 1611, Jamestown was operating under martial law, the colonists lapsing into their old habits, all this freedom to do and act as they please having gone to their heads, and Sir Thomas Dale and Sir Thomas Gates began to enact a strict code of laws, strict enough that if you cursed twice, they would run a spike through your tongue. If caught cursing a third time, it meant death. Stealing someone's corn or grapes could meet with death as well. We'll cover the kidnapping and Christian conversion of Pocahontas, as well as her marriage to John Rolfe and her visit to England, including her very tense meeting with John Smith in England, who by then was writing his memoirs, as well as the grisly death of Radcliffe, who, according to at least one source, had abused some Indian women at Jamestown and paid for it dearly with his life in December of 1609. And now, Part 8 of Captain John Smith and Jamestown, the real story. The Admiral's ship was beaten upon by a fearful storm, which is most graphically described by William Strachey, who was on board the doomed vessel. The people began to look one upon the other with troubled hearts and panting bosoms, but their cries were, drowned in the winds and the winds in thunder. Nothing was heard that could give comfort, nothing seen that might encourage hope, 
such was the tumult of the elements that the sea swelled above the clouds and gave battle unto heaven. It could not be said to rain. The waters like whole rivers did flood in the air, while winds and seas were as mad as fury could make them. The ship spewed out her oakum and sprung leaks in almost every joint. This news, imparting no less terror than danger, ran through the whole ship with much fright and amazement. It was as a wound given to men that were before dead. There was now a dire fight for life. Sailors and passengers stood up to their waists in water, bailing with buckets, kettles, anything. The common sort stripped naked as men in galleys, the easier both to hold out and to shrink from under the salt water which continually leapt in among them, kept their eyes waking and their thoughts and hands working with tired bodies and wasted spirits. Three days and four nights, destitute of outward comfort, and desperate of any deliverance, testifying how mutually willing they were, yet by labor to keep each other from drowning, albeit each one drowned while he labored. Hope was almost gone with the exhausted passengers. Some even drank a farewell to one another, until a speedy meeting in the other world. The aged admiral, Sir George Summers, sat upon the poop deck directing the vessel's course almost without food or sleep. On the last night of their dreary vigil, he called his men to see the electrical phenomenon known as St. Elmo's Light, an apparition of a little round light like a faint star, trembling and streaming along with a sparkling blaze, half the height upon the mainmast, and shooting from shroud to shroud, tempting to settle as it were upon any of the four shrouds. Half the night it kept with us, but upon a sudden, toward the morning watch, they lost it, and knew not which way it made. Sir George Summers, from his post, called out that land was in sight. This unlooked-for welcome news, said Smith's history, as if it had been a voice from heaven, hurrieth all above hatches to look for that they durst scarce believe, so that improvidently forsaking their task, the bailing of water, which imported no less than their lives, they gave so dangerous advantage to their greedy enemy, the salt water which still entered at the large breaches of their poor wooden castle, as that in gaping afterlife they had well nigh swallowed their death. It was not necessary now, however, to urge every man to do his best. The coast before them was one usually avoided by sailors, but these storm-tossed adventurers spread all sail to reach it. The sea adventurers struck first upon a rock, from which the surge of the sea cast her away again, and then upon another. The much-battered vessel at last found safe harbor wedged in an upright position between two rocks on the coast of the Bermuda Islands, as though in a dry dock at home. The adventures of this vessel probably suggested the subject of one of the greatest plays in the English language, The Tempest of Shakespeare. The 150 colonists upon the sea adventure were thus safely landed upon the Bermudas. These islands had long had a reputation among sailors for being enchanted. A den of furies and devils, the most dangerous, unfortunate, and forlorn place in the world. The delighted adventurers, roaming over their island, found it to be the richest, healthfulest, and pleasantest they ever saw. All went busily to work some taking what could be gotten from the wrecked vessel, some in search of food and water, 
and others building cabins of palmetto, while old Sir George did not search long before he found such a fishing that in the course of half an hour he caught enough fish with a hook and line to feed the whole company. The island was found to abound in wild hogs. In fact, the colonists lived in such plenty and so easily upon the game and fruit of the island that many of them desired never to leave it. For about nine months, the adventurers dwelt upon the Bermudas, which were then named the Summer's Isles, in honor of the Admiral. The name was afterwards corrupted to Summer Islands. In spite of the plenteous fruitfulness of the land, this little colony was not without its jealousies and dissensions. On the whole, however, the winter passed pleasantly in the occupation of building two pinnaces out of cedar and the remains of the old sea adventure. Two children were born upon the island. The boy was christened Bermudas, and the girl, daughter to Mr. John Rolfe, was named Bermuda. They had also a merry English marriage. Sir George Summers Cook wedded the maid of Mrs. Mary Horton, named Elizabeth Persons. Now that little paragraph is pretty interesting, because it's John Rolfe who, just a few years later, will tie the knot with Pocahontas. A longboat was sent to Virginia in the spring, but never was heard of. The adventurers were at last ready to embark for Jamestown again. The two vessels, the Deliverance and the Patience, were furnished with what provision had been saved from the wreck, and the colonists embarked in May of 1610 for Virginia. A forlorn welcome awaited them there. The winter of 1609-1610 at Jamestown was known as the Starving Time. George Percy, who was in poor health, had been elected president, but the unruly colonists had no leader, no indomitable will to force them to something like thrift and forethought. Pigs were eaten, the horses were devoured, not a chicken was left in the colony. Tools and weapons went to the Indians for food. Trips into the Indian country in search of provision were managed poorly and resulted disastrously. One supply party of 30 men was cut off by Powhatan. Only one man escaped, and a boy named Henry Spellman was saved by the never-failing kindness of Pocahontas. He lived for some years afterwards among the Potomac Indians. A company of men deserted in the colony's largest vessel. Some of them became pirates. Others returned to England with an exaggerated tale of horrors as an excuse for their own conduct. A miserable winter of hunger and crime was followed by a hopeless spring. Things became desperate. In ten days more, the last of the colonists would have been dead. But, said Smith's history, God was not willing that this country should be unplanted. The hopeful little colony from the summer islands landed to find left but sixty wretched men out of the four hundred and ninety. Sir Thomas Gates entered the dilapidated and deserted church. The bell was solemnly rung, summoning the survivors. Service was held, and a zealous and sorrowful prayer was made on the part of Chaplain Buck, who had come with the Bermuda colonists. Mr. Percy then delivered up the colony's first patent and the papers of the colony, and Sir Thomas Gates entered upon his new office. He looked about him. Jamestown was indeed in a ruined condition. The gates were off their hinges, many of the palisades were gone, and dead men's cottages had been torn down for firewood 
by weak and indolent survivors. Gates could see no hope for the colony which had been planted at so much expense of money and life. His stock of provisions would last but a few weeks, and the Indians were determined in their hostility. Powhatan was at last sure of being rid of his troublesome neighbors. His policy was to starve the English out at least until the taking of Jamestown should be an easy matter. There was but one thing to be done. The provisions would barely last to get the colony to Newfoundland, where there were chances of meeting with English fishing vessels. Two weeks after the arrival of the Bermuda colonists, four pinnaces, the Discovery and the Virginia, the Deliverance and the Patience, lay in the James River ready to sail for Newfoundland. Each man was assigned to his vessel, and the colonists were leaving Jamestown. They hated the poor dismantled village which most of them had hallowed neither by bravery nor self-denial. Some of the more reckless were determined to set fire to the houses and celebrate the occasion with a conflagration. To prevent this, Sir Thomas Gates was the last one to leave Jamestown. As they sailed away, none dropped a tear, for none had enjoyed one day of happiness. That day they dropped down the stream to Hog Island. As they neared the mouth of the James River on the following morning, they met the longboat of Lord Delaware's approaching fleet sent out to intercept them. Lord Delaware had started from London on the 1st of April with 150 colonists, most of whom were working men. One of the vessels, the Hercules, they had lost sight of in a storm. The other two ships sighted the headlands of the Chesapeake Bay on the 5th of June. They anchored for the night off Cape Henry, and the men went ashore to refresh themselves, fish, and set up a cross that the Hercules might know of their arrival if she ever reached Chesapeake Bay. While they fished, some Indians came down to them, held intercourse on friendly terms, and were given a share of the fish by Lord Delaware. On returning to the ships, the navigators decried a sail. Lord Delaware gave chase to the strange vessel. To their great joy, they found her to be the Hercules. The fleet anchored off Point Comfort, where the captain of the fort at this point, Colonel Davis, told them a tale mixed with both joy and sorrow. Joy because of the news that the passengers of the sea adventure had not been lost, as had long been believed. Sorrow because of the misfortunes of the colony. Learning that the apprentices were even now in the river waiting the turn of the tide to sail for Newfoundland, while they had yet provision left, Lord Delaware sent out his longboat to turn them back. The colonists again landed at their deserted town, and on Sunday morning, the 10th of June, Lord Delaware disembarked. A sermon was preached in the church by Mr. Buck, and Sir Thomas Dale delivered up his papers. Lord Delaware then rose and delivered a short speech, laying some blames on them, as he afterwards said in a letter to England, for many vanities and their idleness, earnestly wishing that I might no more find it so lest I should be compelled to draw the sword of justice to cut off such delinquents, which I had much rather draw in their defense to protect them from enemies, and concluding by heartening them with the knowledge of what store of provisions I had brought for them. The settlement in Virginia had indeed come near to extinction. Had Lord Delaware been a day or two later, the colonists would have been gone past recall. On the other hand, 
had they delayed their return for a little longer. The Indians would have sacked and destroyed the fort of Jamestown, which was the only thing that could keep them in abeyance. And indeed, the colonists had nearly destroyed this themselves. Lord Delaware set all things to work to retrieve the fortunes of England's little colony. He must soon have discovered the nature of the men that he had to govern, for he wrote back home that an hundred or two of debauched men dropped forth year after year. Ill provided for before they came, and worse governed after they are here, men whom no examples daily before their eyes, either of goodness or punishment, can deter from their habitual impieties or defy from a shameful death, were not the men to be workers in this so glorious a new colony. Though Lord Delaware had a year's provisions, he did not let the colony depend on these. Captain Argall was sent to fish for cod and halibut, and in the month of August he dropped anchor in a very great bay, which he called the Delaware Bay, after Lord Delaware. Sir George Summers was sent back to the Bermudas to secure some wild hogs with which to restock the colony. The good old gentleman, out of his love and zeal, went most cheerfully and resolutely. He encountered contrary winds and was forced to the more northern coast of Virginia, but he persevered and reached the Bermudas at last in safety. Here Sir George Summers labored hard to accomplish his purpose but he was destined never to leave the islands which bear his name. Finding himself about to die, he exhorted his men to be constant to the Virginia plantation. Lacking the courage of their leader, his men, however, embalmed his body and set sail with it for England. Sir George Somers loved the Bermuda Islands so much that he asked that his heart remain there, though his body be carried back to England, and they honored his wish. And there's a small marker there in the Somers Gardens that marks the place where they buried his heart. Three of their number, Carter, Waters, and Chard, had volunteered to remain on the island, their comrades promising to return for them. Here they lived, lords of an island abounding in food. When the ship was fairly out of sight, they worked diligently, planting corn and seeds and building themselves a house. They thus lived happily together until good luck befell them and searching in the crevices of the rocks one day, they came upon a very large block of ambergris, a substance secreted in the intestines of whales, of bright gray color, and very valuable as a perfume. Having now become rich, these three men immediately became unhappy. They grew proud, ambitious, and contemptuous, though in the words of the old narrative they were but three forlorn men, more than three thousand miles from their own country and but small hope ever to see it again. They now fell out for superiority. They had words over the merest trifles, and they sometimes went from words to blows. One day when they were fighting, the dog of one of the men bit his master in disgust, as if, says the story, the dumb beast would reprove them of their folly. Matters went from bad to worse until Chard and Waters, the two prouder spirits of the three, resolved on a duel. Carter became frightened. He preferred even quarrelsome neighbors to solitude, so he hid the duelists' weapons. For two long years these unhappy men lived on their island until their clothes were almost entirely worn from their backs. All this time they kept up a triple war. At last, however, they began to recover their wits. They concluded a tripartite peace and made up their minds to build a boat 
and make a desperate attempt for Virginia. They had no sooner made this resolution than they descried a sail on the horizon. The vessel stood in for shore, and the three exiles were overjoyed, though they neither knew what she was or what she would. They ran with all possible speed to meet her. According to their heart's desire, she proved an Englishman. Those who had returned with Sir George Summer's body attempted to awaken an interest in the Summer Islands, but their stories were considered travelers' tales. It at last came into the mind of some of the Virginia Company that this might be a good land for a new plantation. A company was formed for the planting of the Bermudas, a patent was granted, and this vessel which the three lonely men had described was the first ship sent out to make a trial. The captain found that the three men had been industrious. There was an acre of corn ready to be harvested, with quantities of pumpkins and beans, and a plentiful store of salt park and cured bacon. The three islanders, Carter, Waters, and Chard, never became rich from their block of ambergris. The governor of the new colony got an inkling of it. The result was that the colony was thrown almost into a civil war over this treasure. The governor, using it as a lodestone to draw fresh supplies to his colony, sent back the company only a third at a time of the treasure. Many pieces of it were stolen, and the original finders got no benefit whatsoever, while it served to produce dissension both in the colony and in England. It often happens that riches prove only something to quarrel about. And that story was a story told in one of our short stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, called The Three Kings of Bermuda. If you do look up and subscribe to our podcast, and we hope you do, it's 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, The Three Kings of Bermuda. It's a great story. Back to Jamestown. Under Lord Delaware's governorship, some progress was made in the colony. Hours for labor were from 6 to 10 o'clock in the morning and from 2 to 4 in the afternoon. Two forts were built and named Henry and Charles for the king's sons. The church was rebuilt 24 feet in breadth and 60 in length with a chancel of cedar, cedar pews, a black walnut communion table, and handsome wide windows with shutters to close them in bad weather. The church was kept trimmed with sweet wildflowers. Prayers were held here twice a day. Two sermons were preached on Sunday and one on Monday. When Lord Delaware attended church on Sunday, he was accompanied by the officers of the church with high-sounding names and followed by fifty attendants armed with halberds and wearing his lordship's handsome scarlet livery. In the church, Lord Delaware's seat was a chair covered with green velvet and a red velvet kneeling cushion was before him. Such courtly pomp belonged to the age, but it was ridiculous enough in poor little Jamestown. During Lord Delaware's administration, Captain Argall was sent to the Potomac to get corn from the natives, and Captain Percy was dispatched against the Perisphi Indians to punish them for some misdemeanors, while the English under Percy's management cruelly burnt their cabins and slew some women and children. And take note that Captain Percy was one of the ones who criticized John Smith's leadership, and Smith never killed women and children. During Lord Delaware's stay in America, he was attacked by four or five different diseases. Sir Thomas Dale had been dispatched with three vessels loaded with men and cattle from England. He arrived in Virginia in May of 1611 and took the government out of George Percy's hands. In August, Sir Thomas Gates also arrived in Virginia with a fleet of six vessels, 300 men, 100 cattle, 
200 hogs and a good supply of provisions. He brought from England his wife and daughters, but Lady Gates died on the voyage. When Dale had arrived in the spring, the colony had already relapsed into old habits. The colonists were found busily occupying plain bowling in the streets of Jamestown. A more permanent reform was begun under the successive administrations of Dale and Gates. During this summer, the summer of 1611, the wisest measure yet tried was adopted a measure so simple that it seemed strange that it was so long missed. Every man was giving a little tract of land from which to raise his own support, and the colonists were no longer dependent upon the public store and no longer worked for the interests of others, which is how it had been set up under Lord Delaware's rule. The limits of the colony were fast extended. A new town was built above the falls in James River and named Henrico in honor of the heir apparent to the throne of England, who was a great favorite. Here the Reverend Alexander Whitaker, the Apostle of Virginia, established himself, bearing the name of God to the natives. Morning and evening the colonists prayed, Lord bless England, our sweet native country. The colony was now governed with a terribly severe code of laws taken from the martial laws of the old countries. Everything was done according to rule. It seems incredible what trivial offenses were punished with death. For the second time that a man committed the offense of profanity, a bodkin was thrust through his tongue, and for the third time, the penalty was death. The first time a man stayed away from church, he forfeited a week's allowance. The second time, he was whipped, and the third offense was punished with death. Desertion of the colony, theft, willfully pulling up a flower, gathering of grapes, or plucking ears of corn belonging to others, the killing of domestic animals, were all punished with the same rigor. He who treated a minister with disrespect was publicly whipped three times and forced to ask forgiveness of the congregation three Sundays in succession. For one offense, a man lost his ears and was branded on his hand. For another, he was compelled to lay head and heels together all night. If a man refused to give a clergyman a statement of his faith or declined to take his advice on religious matters, he was whipped daily until he repented. Jamestown no doubt now saw a strict and circumspect body of colonists walking tamely within her streets, and they thought Smith was hard on them. Grants of land were extended. After a time, the London Council began giving individuals patents to large tracts. In time, plantations came to be scattered along the shores of the James River and its tributaries. The increased use of tobacco made this plant a valuable article of export. The little colony was really beginning to reach forth into something like prosperity. All this time, Powhatan was hostile to the colonists. In one way or another, he had possessed himself of many English arms, and we know how, and he detained a number of Englishmen as prisoners. Pocahontas had left Werewakomico out of dissension with her father and happened to be among the Potomac Indians on the river of that name, the Potomac River. One account says that she had gone thither feasting among her friends. But Hamer says that she had been sent to the Potomacs to trade with them. Perhaps also Powhatan distrusted her friendship for the whites. Whatever may have been the cause, Pocahontas was certainly making a stay on the Potomac River. Captain Argall had gone to trade with the Indians on the Potomac. 
some friendly Indians informed him that Pocahontas was in the region. A plan for bringing Powhatan to peace terms immediately suggested itself to the unscrupulous Captain Argall. He sent for one of the Indian chiefs and told him that if he did not give Pocahontas into his hands, they would no longer be brothers nor friends. The Potomac Indians were at first unwilling to do this, fearing that it might involve them in a war with Powhatan. Captain Argall assured them that he would take their part in such a war, and they finally consented to his plan. The following story is told of the manner in which Pocahontas was betrayed. The Indian girl manifested no desire to go aboard Captain Argall's vessels, having many a time been on English vessels in her friendly intercourse with the whites. Captain Argall offered an old Indian named Japazaws the irresistible bribe of a copper kettle if he would betray Pocahontas into his power. Japazaws undertook to do this with the assistance of his wife, whose sex, remarks the old writer, have ever been most powerful in beguiling enticements. The old woman became immediately possessed with an intense desire to visit the English ship, which she said had been there three or four times, and she had never been aboard it. She begged her husband to allow her to go aboard, but Japazaws sternly refused that she could not go unless she had another woman to accompany her. He at last threatened to beat her for her persistence. The tender heart of Pocahontas was moved with pity. She offered to accompany the woman on board the English vessel. Japazaws and his wife, with the chief's daughter, were taken onto the ship, where they were well entertained and invited to supper. The old man and his wife were so well pleased with the success of their stratagem that during the whole meal they kept treading on Captain Argall's toes. After supper, the captain sent Pocahontas to the gun room while he pretended to have a private conversation with Japazaws. He presently recalled her and told her that she must remain with him and that she could not again see Powhatan until she had served to bring about a peace between her father and the English. Immediately, Japazaws and his wife set up a howl and cry, and Pocahontas began to be exceeding pensive and discontented. The old people were rowed to shore, happy in the possession of their copper kettle and some trinkets. Captain Argall sent an Indian messenger to Powhatan, informing him that his delight and darling, his daughter Pocahontas, was now a prisoner, and informing him that if he would send home the Englishman whom he had detained in slavery, with such arms and tools as the Indians had gotten and stolen, and also a great quantity of corn, that then he should have his daughter restored. Otherwise, not. Powhatan was, as you can expect, very much grieved, having a strong affection both for his daughter and for the English weapons which he possessed. It was a hard alternative. He sent, however, a message desiring the English to use Pocahontas well and promising to perform the conditions for her rescue. It was a long time before anything more was heard from Powhatan. After three months, he sent to the governor by way of ransom seven Englishmen, overjoyed to be free from slavery and the constant fear of a cruel death. Three muskets, a broad axe, a whipsaw, and a canoe full of corn. These were accompanied with a message to the effect that he would further satisfy injuries, give the English a large quantity of corn, and be forever their friend when his daughter was delivered up. The English received these things in part payment, and returned such an answer as this to Powhatan. Your daughter shall be well used, 
but we cannot believe the rest of our arms either lost or stolen from you. And therefore, till you send them, we will keep your daughter. The wily old chief was much grieved at this message, and it was again a long time before anything was heard from him. At last, Sir Thomas Dale, taking with him Pocahontas and a hundred and fifty men, embarked in the colony's vessels for a visit to Powhatan. The party sailed up the York River, but Powhatan was not to be seen. The English told the Indians that they had come to deliver up the daughter of Powhatan and to receive the promised return of men and arms. These overtures were received with scornful threats and bravados and open hostility. Skirmishing ensued, in which some of the Indian houses were burned and property spoiled. The Indians asked why this had been done. The English answered by asking why they had shot at them. The Indians excused themselves, laying the blame on some straggling savages. They protested they intended no harm, but were the white men's friends. The English rejoined that they did not come to hurt them, but came as friends. A peace was patched up, and messengers were sent to Powhatan. The Indians told the English that their imprisoned men were run off for fear the English would hang them, but that Powhatan's men were run after to bring them back. They promised to return them with the stolen swords and muskets on the following day. The English perceived that this story was told only to gain time. Meantime, two brothers of Pocahontas came aboard the ship to visit her. They had heard she was not well, and were overjoyed to find her in good health and contented. While they were visiting with their sister, Mr. John Rolfe and Mr. Sparks were sent to negotiate with Powhatan. They were received kindly and hospitably entertained, but they were not admitted to the presence of the offended chief. His brother, Opie Kankanoff, saw them and promised to do the best he could with Powhatan, saying that all might be well. With such slight satisfaction, the English were obliged to return to Jamestown, for it was now April and time to sow corn. Pocahontas by now had been about a year a prisoner at Jamestown. There can be no doubt that she was treated with the greatest friendliness by the colonists. Her feelings had always been warm for the white strangers. Now that she was an innocent and interesting young prisoner among them, what more natural than that she should be honored and petted? Pocahontas was now a woman, being about 18 to 19 years of age. To judge from her portrait, which still survives today, she could not have possessed the beauty with which tradition has invested her, but she had at least a pleasant and interesting face, and there must have been some charm in her large black eyes and straight black hair. There was one colonist at least who took a great interest in the young prisoner. Mr. John Rolfe is styled in the different records an honest gentleman of good behavior, also described as an honest and discreet English gentleman. His wife, whose little daughter was born at the Summer Islands and christened Bermuda, must have fallen victim to the malarial influences which did such deadly work among newly arrived colonists in Jamestown. The subject of the conversion of Pocahontas had weighed heavily upon the mind of Mr. Rolfe. He accordingly attempted to convert her to Christianity, and in doing so, fell in love with her. Pocahontas became a Christian, and what more natural than that the constant friend of the white man should love an Englishman. Long before the trip up the York River, Mr. Rolfe had loved the Indian maiden. He wrote a long letter to Sir Thomas Dale asking his advice. Sir Thomas readily consented to the marriage. 
Pocahontas, on her part, told her brother of her attachment to Mr. Rolfe. He informed Powhatan, who seems to have been well pleased with the proposition, but within ten days an old uncle of Pocahontas and two of her brothers arrived at Jamestown. Pocahontas had sent them as deputies to witness the marriage of his daughter and to do his part toward the confirmation of it. Pocahontas was first baptized. It was deemed necessary to give her a Christian name at her baptism. She was christened Rebecca, and as a king's daughter, she was known after this as the Lady Rebecca, and sometimes as the Lady Pocahontas. In April 1614, the old bridal procession moved up the little church with its wide open windows and its cedar pews. The bridegroom was a young Englishman, the bride an Indian chief's daughter, accompanied by two red-skinned warriors, her brothers, and given away by an old uncle. Perhaps more than one of the colony's ministers officiated. Before the altar, with its canoe-like font, Pocahontas repeated in imperfect English her marriage vows and donned her wedding ring. The wedding is briefly mentioned by the old recorders only as something bearing upon the welfare of the colony. It was the first union between the people who were to possess the land and the natives. The colonists doubtless regarded it as a most auspicious event, binding as it did the most powerful chief in Virginia to their interests. Pocahontas's wedding day must have been a festive day in this balmiest of the months of the Virginia climate. From this day, friendly intercourse and trade were again established with Powhatan and his people. To the day of his death, the old chief never violated the peace which was thus brought about. It should be mentioned that this was April of 1614, but only eight years later, Pocahontas's brother, Opikankanoff, would attack and attempt to kill every white in the Jamestown colony. Thanks for listening to Part 8 of Captain John Smith and Jamestown, The Real Story. Our final Part 9 will air a week from today. Apple listeners, we would appreciate your reviews very much at 1001 Stories for the Road if you've enjoyed the story thus far. And this one is five stars, loyal listener. Mr. Hagedorn does an excellent job retelling some wonderful stories. I listen every day during my 55-minute commute to and from work. I love the American history tales, old whaling tales, and all the Jack London stories. Keep it up, sir. Your love for the stories you tell really shines through in your enthusiasm and genuine joy. That from Seth the Land Surveyor, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, no depth, two stars. Episodes are too short and lack depth of information. That from B.M. Chris, 1234, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars. Looking forward to this. I listen all the time and I'm excited for another show from the host. That from Trelge, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, two stars. Funny. Funny how killing a magnificent fish is so fulfilling for some weirdos. Sad story too often repeated as entertainment. Now one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And that must be referring to Bonefish, a fantastic double story we got from Zane Gray, who, by the way, with the exception of providing fish for dinner, was very much into catch and release. And this one, love it. These are great. Can't wait to hear more. Keep them coming. I also love your 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I listen to these on my way to work. You have a nice mix of knowledge, surprise, shock, and smiles. 
And that one from O'Laney, Apple Podcast US. And this one, five stars, great show. Just what you need in today's world of negativity. This podcast is a breath of fresh air. Thank you also very, very, very much for sending us those reviews. And I'd like to add my two cents worth. I've been hosting the 1001 shows now for four and a half years. It's been a labor of love, as all of you know. We've amassed tens of thousands of fans worldwide. We appreciate your chiming in and giving us your feedback very, very much. It's heartfelt, and we appreciate it. When we get bad reviews, and all shows do, it always brings me down a little bit. We do spend quite a bit of time researching our facts and making sure they're right for all of our shows. We spend time trying to make them enjoyable. The art of reading them well so that others are interested is an art, and it's something that has to be practiced and maintained and done well in order to have a successful show. And I think we've gotten there. And the work of editing a show is always there. Editing out everything from small breaths to you name it, and taking the time to make each show as perfect as possible so that it becomes a better listening experience. It's something that I've spent years trying to learn to do right for all these things and for being able to choose the right stories and for being able to entertain and provide knowledge and history. We would appreciate your reviews and your thank yous, not only for this show, 1001 Stories for the Road, but for our other shows as well. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Radio Days, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. What we have found out is that the way to rise in the rankings in this business is to get those subscriptions, whether it's Apple or whether it's any of the other podcast hosts out there that serve Android. But it's new subscriptions that really help us rise in the rankings. So that when you go out and tell other people about our show and even help them subscribe, that really does help us in the rankings. Reviews are number two. Those are extremely important as well. And we would appreciate it if you are good fans of the show and if you're enjoying us, please do send us a good review. It means the world to me to know that we're being recognized for the efforts that we're putting out to provide a great free product on the Internet. Thank you also very, very much for being such great fans. And we'll be back next week with the final chapter of Captain John Smith and Jamestown, The Real Story.